Well, I'm just going to jump in and, um, yeah, there's a lot to cover, so I'll try to um, leave time for questions. If I need to skip something, I might just skip it. Um, as I said in the email, so this week we're going to cover the doctrine of salvation. Um, we'll do some introductory things. Um, but this lecture really is primarily going to focus on uh, justification, regeneration, conversion, um, and then we're not going to touch sanctification and glorification. Uh, I trust most of you have a grasp of those concepts. Um, but why it's important to focus on um, things like election or justification, just because there tends to be more confusion about those topics, more controversy, and uh, contemporary challenges to those um, ideas. So that's why I've structured it uh, like I have. So let me pray for us, and then we'll just jump in. Jesus, thank you for this community, uh, this community of learners, uh, thank you for your word and your spirit who guides us and teaches us uh, your truth. And so we ask that um, your spirit would lead and direct this time. And I, I pray that you would help me speak clearly and um, that the end of this for all of us would be uh, a transformed heart um, and a transformed mind by your spirit. So we ask this in your name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to cover the doctrine of salvation. Here's the big idea of the lecture, and it's simply salvation is from God, by God, and to God. So salvation is thoroughly God-centered. It's a God-initiated, uh, God-saturated action. Salvation is from God, by God, and to God. And uh, questions for application uh, would be, you know, how do I ensure I, I do not neglect so great a salvation? Or it, does my life properly reflect uh, things like thanksgiving, joy, obedience, praise, worship, things that are proper to responding to God's great act of salvation, God's saving work? A um, couple passages here, just about salvation in general, uh, Revelation 7 is this great passage of the, the throne room in heaven. And John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So I love that. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. It's his work. So let me give you, um, here's the overview of things we're going to cover. So uh, real broadly, what is salvation 
and how does, what is the Christian conception of salvation? How does that differ from how other worldviews or other religions conceptualize uh, what salvation is? And then something called the ordo salutis, that's just a way that theologians organize a sequence of salvation. Not that um, it's easy to piece this out, that's not the idea. Uh, but this helps us organize all of the biblical material for what God's work of salvation entails. And so those are what we're going to cover. And then we'll end with um, some thoughts on justification, how our understanding of justification differs from, say, Roman Catholics, And then if we have time, something called the New Perspective on Paul, which maybe you've heard about. Uh, It's a um, New Testament theological debate that's a contemporary debate. So uh, let's jump in with salvation, uh, a worldview, and definition. So uh, as as you know, everyone has a worldview. That's the interpretive grid through which you understand the world. Um, it, it reflects your given assumptions about what the world is, how it works, what, what the problems are, uh, and what the solutions to those problems are. So every worldview basically seeks to answer those questions. Um, how do we know anything at all? Uh, who is God or what is ultimate reality? What's really real? Who are we? Uh, what's our problem? What's our purpose? Or is there meaning in this life? And, and included in that is what happens when we die. So uh, the Christian worldview answers that by saying, how do we know? Well, scripture, divine revelation, that's epistemology, the study of how we know. Uh, what is ultimate reality? Who is God? Well, God is triune. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We can think of God's attributes. Who are we? So we have this whole whole robust doctrine of uh, humankind. Uh, What's our problem? The origin and spread of sin in the world. Uh, What's our purpose? Our purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. And what happens when we die? We believe there's eternal punishment and eternal beatitude in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's, you know, the Christian worldview in overview. And so the doctrine of salvation, or what's called soteriology, is getting uh, at the question, it's, getting, it's providing an answer to the question, what is our problem? And so the basic fundamental problem for humanity is pervasive, thorough corruption by sin. Uh, the devastating effects of sin in the world, corruption of ourselves and the entire creation from God's original design and purpose for it. So death enters the world as a result of sin. And this is physical death, but it's also a spiritual death. It is, um, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead from being in covenantal relationship with the living God. And so in order to save humanity from this ruined condition, God the Father sends the Son to assume a human nature in order to save and redeem us. And that's, that's the whole doctrine of atonement. Um, 
but how that salvation was accomplished on the cross. So salvation is a mighty act of God. This is a robust uh, definition of salvation. It says, salvation is rescue from sin and condemnation through divine intervention of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And salvation has two aspects. First, it was accomplished through the perfect obedience, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's announced in the gospel and then appropriated or applied by people through repentance and faith in Christ's work. So, in short, salvation is rescue from sin and condemnation through forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. How is it secured? It was secured for us at the cross, and then it is announced to us and applied to us as we turn from sin and place faith in, in Christ. So salvation affects our entire life. Um, as Dallas Willard, he'll use the analogy of what he calls barcode Christianity. So it's not simply about getting scanned. Sometimes we can treat it as that. Uh, salvation is about getting into heaven, getting scanned, and then you're good. So it's not a trivial transaction. Uh, it's not to be equated with making a decision, even though it entails making a decision. Uh, it's more expansive than that. So salvation is from God, by God, and to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It originates in God's free decision to save us uh, because of his good pleasure. And uh, it belongs to him. It belongs to the God who's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He plans to send the Son and Spirit to accomplish and apply the benefits of salvation. Uh, so that's what it means. Salvation is from God. Salvation is by God. That means it's accomplished through him. It's accomplished through the mission of the Son and applied via the Spirit, who brings us back into relationship with the Father through the Son. And then salvation is, so from, by, salvation is to God. What does that mean? That means we're saved to something. We're not just saved from sin, we're saved to enjoy life with God. So we're saved to him to enjoy eternal relationship and bliss with him forever. So how does, um, think about other religions, other worldviews, how does salvation as a solution to the question, what is our problem, differ from how other worldviews think about this question? We're not going to go into crazy detail with any of these, and I'm not by any means an expert on global religions. Uh, later in the fall, Terry's going to teach a class on worldviews, and he'll go more in depth into uh, some of the material here. Uh, but basically what I want to hit on is just that the Bible's presentation and understanding is fundamentally different uh, from other world religions, worldviews, or other secular philosophies. So uh, there's a theologian I like, Herman Bavinck. He reminds us, he'll say, the arts and the sciences, so philosophy, uh, sociology, history, the humanities, all of these things, they help us make uh, human life more pleasant. Um, they may enrich human life in a variety of ways, but ultimately, 
They're powerless to bring humans lasting happiness apart from the gospel. And so our problem is not just mere lack of education or lack of knowledge or lack of resources. Our problem is uh, the ethical effects of sin. Um, So our life is not disconnected from social problems, but at root, um, there's something more than just a social problem to be solved. That's what I'm getting at. So there's this God has put eternity in our hearts. There's this universal desire for salvation, this longing for God. Um, Ecclesiastes mentions that Paul, when he's Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus, he's speaking in the public square. And uh, there's all these people that are worshiping um, to the unknown God, right? And he says, you worship what you don't know. I'm going to tell you about uh, the living God, the true God. So he speaks to their universal desire to worship God, and he, um, he says, Acts 17, 27, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, but he's actually not far from each one of us. And so Paul is addressing that human desire for God. They don't know who he is, but he knows the living God. Um, And the problem is human solutions fall short. So like Acts 17, it falls into idolatry to the unknown God or other solutions. Uh, Human solutions always fall short. So pagan religions seek to appease the gods through some sort of ritual, sacrifice, some sort of human action, prayers, ceremonies, all the rest. Um, But it begins with human action. Uh, So take Buddhism, as Terry even mentioned this in his sermon this morning. uh, In their worldview, the problem is not sin, metaphysically, that's not the problem. The problem is desire. So you eliminate why is there suffering in the world. Um, You eliminate desire, you eliminate pain and misery. So this eightfold path, uh, that's the wheel of dharma, The Eightfold Path is this process whereby you become numb to pain and the eliminations of desire and so forth. So on this scheme, humans are agents bringing their own salvation, in a sense. They are their own redemption, your own enlightenment. Um, You're securing salvation or nirvana, enlightenment. Uh, Same thing with Islam. Uh, Salvation ultimately is secured through human action. Uh, So, you know, in my experience talking with Muslims, um, their understanding is God is less concerned with redemption of sin, punishing sin. Um, He's more concerned with duties and obligations. Um, So sometimes we call this the five pillars of Islam, prayer, giving of alms, fasting, pilgrimage, those things. Um, My Muslim friend in China, you know, we have a different conception of God and his nature. So I would say, you know, God is intrinsically just, righteous. Um, My Muslim friend wasn't concerned with God's intrinsic justice because he presents the scheme of salvation basically as a balancing scale, and that was his image he used. Um, And basically he said, 
as long as my good deeds outweigh the bad, then everything's okay. Uh, but for the sake of argument, you say, okay, well, this is ridiculous, but say your good we- deeds outweigh your bad deeds. How is God just if he doesn't actually punish those sins? He just turns a blind eye, like he doesn't actually do something with those bad deeds. Um, I would say that's not a God who's actually just because sin, because God's justice is is tied to his nature, requires some sort of satisfaction, some sort of punishment. So it's a different conception of um, the God-world relationship. Uh, Perhaps you've seen this sign. This is a new my new favorite religious yard sign. I see them all over the place in my neighborhood. Uh, In this house, we believe love is love, science is real, and kindness is everything. Uh, When Elizabeth and I are walking our dog, I sarcastically say, oh, look, they believe in science. (laughs) As if I don't, right? Um, But yeah, what does that last line mean? Kindness is everything. That's just empty moral, moralism. Uh, that's a path to salvation of sorts. But it's simply defined by their own virtues and moral self-perfection. So salvation, even here in the secular framework, is a result of human action, checking all the right boxes, uh, voting for these policies, etc. So who, who is defining kindness here? Does kindness mean like Midwestern nice? (laughs) Oh, just be nice, be Mr. Rogers? Or is it kindness that leads to repentance? Uh, Kindness that is rooted in God's moral goodness and excellence. So even there, that's a, it sounds good, but really I think it's an empty phrase if it's just kindness hanging in midair. So the Bible has a completely different view of salvation. Salvation is not wrought or brought by humanity. It doesn't start with us. As Rodney said this morning, as we passed communion, that was a a symbolic representation of God coming to us, moving towards us to save us. Salvation is a gift from God. We need to be careful with how we think about the Old Testament and New Testament So it's not as if the Old Testament um, was not about grace at all. It was only about law. That's not it. Uh, The Old Testament was about grace. Uh, Galatians 3, Paul says Abraham was credited, he was considered or reckoned as righteous on the basis of faith. And so he'll say the promise that God gave to Abraham came before Uh, The law came before things like circumcision. So all of that signifies grace is active all the way throughout the Old Testament. Um, Immediately after the fall, God's encounter with fallen humanity reveals his wrath and his grace. So Adam and Eve violated the covenant, the conditions for ongoing relationship with God. The covenant's broken. Adam and Eve feel shame over their sin. They feel guilt over it. Their conscience has been awakened to the realization of their own shortcomings, their own moral failure. 
But God sees them, and that's grace. Because in the garden, their conscience is awakened to sin. They hide and slide. But God calls to them, and he doesn't abandon them or forsake them. They're hiding and sliding. Uh, but really, God is walking, pursuing, calling after them, encouraging them. Uh, he's saying, don't hide and slide. He's encouraging them to hide in him. He's saying, I'm your refuge. Um, so, Genesis 3, 9 through 13 specifies consequences for sin. So there's wrath, punishment. Uh, but we also see this revelation of God's mercy and his grace. So God in his grace announces that he is for us. He will destroy the evil one. So that's what that uh, Genesis 3.15 is. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel proclamation in the Bible. occurs in Genesis 3.15. And there's this promise that uh, the seed of the woman, there would come one from the line of this woman who would destroy the serpent. So that's Christ, though wounded himself, though the serpent strikes his heel, though he's wounded himself on the cross, he will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy the power of sin and the devil. So that's what that's about. So even in Genesis, it's gospel and grace. Um, And that continues throughout the Old Testament as the narrative progresses. So God elects a people for his own possession, making covenant with Abraham the people of Israel, with Moses leading them, David, and so forth. Um, He gives them his law. He provides, and what is the law? It's providing means through which atonement can be provided. It's a means through which God will dwell with his people. He will be their God. He will save them. And the Old Testament covenants are about God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises. So there is a human side of obedience to these covenant promises through things like law-keeping and the rest. Uh, There are certain stipulations for that relationship. Um, But the The covenant um, covenant ultimately depends on God um, who would uphold and be faithful to the covenant despite Israel's continual failings. So sometimes we make a distinction in the covenants of things called unilateral covenant or bilateral. And so what that means, unilateral covenant would be an unconditional covenant. God alone is the one uh, who is going to fulfill the covenant. Something bilateral would be there's a human side of obedience. Really, I think all covenants are unilateral, unconditional. God is going to be faithful regardless of what humans do. Uh, But they also all all entail a bilateral element. They all entail conditions for obligations and obedience on the human side. So they're all um, bilateral and unilateral, but really, ultimately, God is the one who will be faithful to his promises. Um, Why is the law given? The law then is given as a temporary tutor for us, 
the law is given to draw the curse of sin, the consequences for failing to uphold the law, into one place where God would mete out his justice. And that will be in the flesh of his son, where he condemns sin. So we needed Jesus, who was fully God, fully man, through his perfect obedience. He embodies the perfect obedience of what the law requires, and he's able to stand acting as our representative, and he takes on the curse of the law in order to set us free. So again, the biblical view from the Old Testament to New Testament, salvation is this gift of God's grace as a result of God's own sovereign freedom. Salvation is not procured through human action, but it it solely is God's divine initiative. God is the one moving towards sinful humanity in order to save them and redeem them. And God's free gift of salvation is wholly grounded in God's mercy, in his goodness. And so that sets the Christian understanding of salvation apart from all major world religions. So let's look at then the order of salvation. How do we conceptualize what's taking place when somebody uh, becomes born again, uh, responds to the gospel, and then grows in Christ-likeness? This is the order of salvation. How is salvation acquired and applied? It was acquired through Christ's obedience, his sacrificial death and resurrection. It is applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So as I said, the, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, is necessary as a conceptual tool to help us think with specificity regarding Scripture's teaching. Um, it's not easy to parse out when did conversion happen. Sometimes that can be difficult. Uh, but as, as we talk about God's mighty act of salvation as a whole, we, we think about all the different features that entails. So here's a robust definition. So the order of salvation is the sequence of God's mighty acts in applying salvation with several proposals. So there's agreement amongst Christians about what all this entails. Things like calling, God calling us to him. Regeneration, being born again. Conversion, our response to the gospel. Justification, union with Christ. Adoption, as sons and daughters. Uh, That's taking place at the beginning of salvation, broadly speaking. And then uh, salvation occurs uh, through sanctification throughout one's life. And then glorification comes at the return of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So we'll talk more about this distinction between Reformed thought and Arminian thought. Um, Those are two theological positions. So they, they disagree about this order of salvation. So Reformed theology, think um, um, John Calvin, Presbyterians, Westminster Confession, uh, myself, <laughs> surprise, um, others. Reformed theology, election is a mighty act of God from eternity past, 
Regeneration precedes conversion. Um, perseverance, meaning enduring faith, accompanies salva- sanctification. Um, Arminian theology, there's something that's called prevenient grace, which means basically it's gr- enabling grace, grace that goes before someone um, to enable them to respond to the gospel and so forth. Uh, they will place regeneration after conversion. Um, and there's not necessarily perseverance, enduring faith. So as I said, I'm going to present a reformed order of salvation just because that's the position I'm in alignment with. But I'm going to present this with some caveats. Uh, think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7:12, where he says, uh, I, not the Lord, am speaking. And then sometimes he'll say, this is the Lord. <laughs> so there are certain essentials. And then Paul will say, this is my view. And so that's, that's how I'm presenting this. And why is that important? Well, I'm presenting my perspective on this. That doesn't mean you have to share my theological convictions. Um, and on these matters in particular, there's diversity of opinion and theological beliefs in our own statement of faith. So in the Baptist faith and message, which is the statement of faith that this church holds, that's our unifying document. That's our document that enables um, us to associate, um, do worship together. Um, in that statement, it's written as such so that Reformed and Armenian the, uh, positions can be welcome at the table. So, uh, minus the issue of perseverance of the saints. Uh, the Baptist faith and message is actually very explicitly reformed there. Um, but in terms of God's calling, election, regeneration, conversion, the Baptist faith and message allows for a diversity of opinion here. So that's, that's the caveat. So let's look at election then. So the order of salvation begins with election. That's God's choice to save and redeem fallen humanity. And there's actually something called the pactum salutis. So just like there's the order, ordo salutis, the order of salvation, the pactum salutis is the pact, the agreement or the covenant of salvation or the covenant of redemption. And what that is, is this intra-Trinitarian agreement among the three persons to save and redeem fallen humanity. So in eternity past, the Father sends plans to send the Son who will assume a human nature for our salvation. Uh, so that's, that's God's eternal plan of redemption. Um, but let me provide the definition of election. What are we actually talking about here? And then we'll look at three popular misconceptions about this teaching uh, before looking at some biblical material. So here's the definition. This is the definition from our faith and message. So election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, that is, causes to be born again. He regenerates, justifies, and sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It's consistent with the free agency of man, so it's consistent with our freedom, Um, and it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. 
and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So again, this is God's free choice to save and redeem a fallen humanity that is consistent with our freedom. Here's a little more thorough of a definition, and this will parse out some of the differences. So on the Reformed side of the house, election is the sovereign eternal purpose of God to save certain people through his gracious work in Christ. Election is unconditional. We'll talk about what that means. It's not based on people's foreknowledge. It's not based on his foreknowledge of people's faith and good works. Rather, it's grounded in God's good pleasure. That's what it means by unconditional. Uh, On the Arminian side of the house, election is God's purpose to save people who through provenient grace, that grace that goes before, uh, they repent and believe in Christ and continue on in salvation. So for them, election is conditional. It's based on God's decision to save is based on his foreknowledge of people's faith and perseverance throughout their life. So let's talk about some misnomers or or, uh, misconceptions about election or predestination. Let's clear the air before jumping into it. So misconception number one, uh, election is incompatible with human freedom. So in other words, election equals uh, determinism or fatalism, where we're just uh, puppets and God is controlling things. Uh, That's false, okay? And this is false on both sides of the house. Uh, As the Baptist faith and message clearly states, it says election is compatible with human freedom. So it's important to recognize that this is, uh, for both Reformed and Arminians, uh, hold to this idea. So the issue of predestination or the issue of election is not actually properly about the existence of free will. That's not what the debate is about. Uh, Because both Reformed Calvinists and Arminians affirm free will. Uh, So I think in popular thought, sometimes we can say, well, I'm not Reformed, or I'm not Calvinist, and what someone may mean by that is, I believe in free will. And that's not quite right. Uh, because the Reformed and Calvinists believe in free will. So, for example, this comes from the Westminster Confession, which is a historic Reformed statement of faith. And uh, here's what uh, paragraph three, or article three, paragraph one says. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So God's sovereignty in whatever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So basically this is saying God sovereignly is ordaining all that comes to pass, but he's doing so in such a way that God cannot be said to be the author of sin and God is not doing violence to humans' free will. Um, But there's this thing that they'll 
they call uh, second causes, which maybe we can discuss that in the Q&A session. Uh, but anyway, all this is to say this is a reformed Calvinistic document. They are clearly affirming human freedom. So the debate is not so much about the existence of free will in itself. That's a popular misconception. Uh, this document, this view of human freedom is highly nuanced. So God is sovereign, yet our choices matter. God is sovereign, humans are responsible. Uh, God is not sovereign in a way that he does violence to our will, our freedom, um, but that God's sovereignty is properly the ground that establishes our freedom. The difference between the Reformed and the Arminians is on the question of election is the notion of conditional or unconditional. So the Reformed hold to that God's decision to save is not contingent, so unconditional, it is not contingent on human action or human response. So it's unconditional. And they will say this was God's decision grounded in his wise, good, holy, sovereign, good pleasure. And the Reformed concern with the Arminian position is that if God's decision to save fallen humanity is, is based on his foreknowledge of their response, then really we're making God contingent on the human. So it's, they view it as limiting God's freedom, making God's sovereign freedom contingent on the human action. So Arminians will emphasize uh, yes, but this is God's prevenient grace, grace that goes before the human response. But as the Reformed understand that, they would say uh, that prevenient grace, the emphasis is still on the human response. So it's making God's decision contingent on the human response to the gospel, as if the human just needs a little assistance. And so they'll, they'll reject that. Um, you don't want to construe it as they're saying the Arminians believe we're saved by works, because that's not, the Arminians will say no, it's prevenient grace. Um, but as the Reformed understand it, it sounds <laughs> very similar to works, a human action is what makes God decide to then save that person. That's the difference, not the existence of free will. So the bottom line on election, wherever you fall, is that both affirm election is consistent with human freedom, God is sovereign, choices matter. Uh, misconception about election, predestination number two. Uh, so it is said, Election discourages evangelism and missions. If God is sovereign and he has elected those whom he will save, then why engage in evangelism? Why does it matter? And if you want to read a great book on this, it has a new edition, because this, what is this edition? 1961, yeah. <laughs> Better cover. Uh, this book 
uh, written by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is a great book on this topic. Uh, Packer is a Reformed theologian. He's Calvinist. Uh, but he, he has this great discussion about um, how the Reformed understanding of election doesn't discourage missions and election, or missions and evangelism. Historically, the Reformed have engaged in missions and evangelism and view it as a means through which God calls people to salvation. It's actually only a very small minority in the Reformed tradition who ever taught that we should discourage evangelism and missions. Virtually no one teaches that. Only what I would consider to be sectarian groups teach that. They're known as primitive Baptists, uh, discouraged missions. They, they were never mainstream. But in fact, it's actually Calvinistic Baptists of the 17th century who were passionate supporters of global evangelism and missions. So there's a guy by the name of Andrew Fuller. Um, he was a promoter of world evangelization. He profoundly influenced William Carey. William Carey is kind of sometimes said to be the father of modern missions in India. Uh, he too was a Calvinistic Baptist. So in many ways, the modern missions movement can be traced to the work of these 17th century Baptists. Uh, Andrew Fuller wrote a book in 1794. This is the 1794 edition of Packer's book. It's on the same topic. Um, the gospel worthy of all acceptation. Accept, I think that's how you say it. Um, the, we would say the gospel worthy of all acceptance. Um, and he's responding to that same old charge. It's been around for a while, this misconception that election kills evangelism. Fuller himself was a full-blown Calvinist, but he responds to what he considers to be false Calvinism. And here's the conclusion from his book on the duty of evangelism. I love this. He says, I believe it's the duty of every minister of Christ plainly and faithfully to preach the gospel to all who will hear it and as I believe, the inability of men to do spiritual things, to be holy of the moral and therefore of the criminal kind, and it is their duty to love the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him for salvation, though they do not. I therefore believe free and solemn addresses, invitations, calls, and warnings to them to be not only consistent, but directly adapted as means in the hand of the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ." And I consider it as a part of my duty that I could not omit without being guilty of the blood of souls. So here he's saying, yeah, evangelism, strategies, uh, preaching, addresses, invitations, all of those things are means in the hand of the Spirit of God to bring people to Christ. We don't know how it works all together, but they're not inconsistent. So the historical record doesn't substantiate the claim that the doctrine of election um, kills evangelism. The historical record actually suggests the opposite. Uh, the overwhelming consensus is that uh, Calvinistic Baptists in particular were deeply passionate about global worldwide evangelism. And then here's the third misconception that I take most seriously. Um, 
is that election is a man-made system imposed onto the text. Um, as I said, I take this seriously. Uh, too often this charge is made against theology as a whole, the whole discipline. Uh, theology is just man-made systems, taking the Bible out of context and so forth. Uh, but rightly understood, all theology is biblical reasoning. Uh, so we should never conform the text to fit our systems. Uh, so I don't believe what I believe about election uh, because I want to conform to a system. I believe what I believe about election because I believe that that interpretation of those biblical passages is most consistent what I find in Scripture. And I didn't always hold the position that I hold today. Uh, but as I continued to study Scripture, I've grown to embrace that position um, because ultimately, I want to be convinced. I want my convictions to be rooted in the text. And I'm not saying others who hold to a different position don't. What I'm reacting against is saying, I'm not holding to this because I want to hold to a system. <laughs> uh, wherever you fall, I want you to hold to your position because you believe it's grounded in the text. That's what we should want. And then we want those interpretations to be solidly substantiated. Um, so let's look at some biblical passages. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. <clears throat> Famous passage on God's election. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So for me, this verse is a great comfort because knowing that God has chosen me from before the foundations of the world, he was for me. He has a plan for my life. He was for me, even knowing all the ways that I would rebel and stray from his fatherly hand. He was for me. So election here is clearly connected to the idea of redemption. He chose us for adoption for relationship with himself, that we should be blameless, that we should live lives of holiness and godliness, and that is in him we have redemption. So election was not made on, or it was not man-made. Uh, God in eternity past knew what kind of good person, it's not as if God knew in eternity past what kind of good person I would be. No, he chose me and the natural result of my obedience is then to grow in Christ-likeness, living a life of godliness. Um, 
I think one of the things that makes us so uncomfortable about the doctrine of election, uh, I mean, the Bible clearly teaches it, um, but what makes it so uncomfortable, as the Baptist Faith and Message says, is that it excludes human boasting. Uh, we love our autonomy and our freedom, and this passage reminds us of our deep dependence on God. Uh, we can see God's divine freedom in choosing to be Israel's covenant Lord in the Old Testament. So think of passages like uh, in the burning bush, Exodus three fourteen. God reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. So God is completely self-sufficient. And he's not only self-sufficient in terms of his existence, but he's also completely free in terms of who he will be as their covenant Lord. So he will determine for himself uh, what he will do and how he will act to be faithful to his covenant. So that's all sovereign divine freedom, self-existence. As he says in Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That's not based on what we are doing. That's based on his own goodness. And this um, continues uh, passages, chapters uh, 9 through 11, Romans 9 through 11, 9, 16, clearly grounds God's sovereign choice and God's goodness and mercy. It says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And again, this doesn't preclude evangelism, because even Paul will go on to say in Romans 10, verse 1, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. So in 9.16, Paul, Paul says this Decision to save is not based on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he will pray and ask God uh, that God would save them. We have a really difficult time wrestling with how this works. Uh, but Paul will say that his preaching to the Gentiles might stir up jealousy among the Jews in order to bring them to saving faith in Christ. So ultimately, Paul concludes this great mystery uh, with revealing the depths and riches of God. So Romans eleven thirty three through 36, this is Paul's conclusion as he thinks about how does all this work? Uh, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To the glory of God, for, to him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul ends in worship. Um, and that, that's, that's where we should end too. <laughs> so let's look at uh, this idea of union with Christ. Union with Christ is concerned with the application of salvation via the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who makes these realities of salvation present in our lives by uniting us to Christ. So here's the definition of union with Christ. The application of salvation, the mighty work of God to join his people in eternal covenant with the Son who accomplished their salvation. 
Through union, believers are identified with Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So a key passage, we'll look at this further, is Romans 6, 1 through 11, uh, where Paul, he's talking specifically there about baptism as a sign of our union with Christ. We identify with Christ, we've been buried with him through death in baptism, and we are united with his resurrection life. Um, So through union with Christ, God communicates all the blessings of salvation to us. Grace, being born again, redemption, eternal life, justification, and the whole package. So Christ uh, dwells within those with whom he's united, and then we in turn dwell in him. And then union with Christ is a doctrine that is enacted publicly in the church through two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are two uh, very uh, vivid visual depictions of this doctrine. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So think about union with Christ and the real spiritual presence of the Spirit who makes God dwell within us. Um, Union with Christ emphasizes the actualization of that indwelling of God. So we don't, we don't think of this union with God in a mystical sense as if we're so infused with God that our nature's transformed to be something that it's not. But union with Christ is about the real spiritual presence of Christ who then applies all the benefits of our salvation. Um, so we'll cover... In the doctrine of the church, we'll look at baptism and the Lord's Supper in depth. Uh, But here, I'll just overview them. Uh, Baptism, as I mentioned, the passage Romans 6, 3 through 11. Notice the idea of what this signifies. Uh, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, so there's the union. Uh, All throughout the New Testament, union with Christ is seen in those phrases where Paul will say, in Christ, or into Christ. So do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And here's the key verse, verse 5. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then Paul goes on. Uh, But baptism then clearly signifies our union with Christ, our identification with him in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So we don't believe the waters of baptism cause someone to be born again. But I do believe the Spirit, as we saw this morning in first service, uh, the Spirit is especially present, uh, signifying in a unique way our union with Christ. It's a dramatization of that reality. The Lord's Supper, as we took this morning, also demonstrates union with Christ. And the language Paul uses to describe the union of the supper 
is 1 Corinthians 10. He uses the language of participation. And um, he's talking about the importance of um, examining yourself, properly um, receiving the blood or the, the, the wine and the bread. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10.16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So it's, it's a meal, it's a memorial meal where we remember Christ's death, but it's a real participation, it's a real expression of our participation in Christ, our, un, our union with him. It signifies our union with Christ and our union with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so my view of the Lord's Supper, again, we'll look in depth at this next week, but my view of the Lord's Supper follows Calvin, who believed in what he called the real spiritual presence of Christ at the table. So don't believe in transubstantiation, as the Catholics teach. Uh, Don't believe in consubstantiation, as Lutherans teach. Uh, they will teach in the real physical presence of Christ in, with, and under the elements. I don't believe Christ is physically present when we partake, but I believe in the real spiritual presence of Christ through faith. When we partake of the elements, um, the Spirit is present, just as we would say the Spirit is present in the proclamation of the Word, the Spirit is present in that action Um, and we are reminded of the benefits of salvation, what he accomplished for us. We're reminded of our union that we should have with one another. Uh, We we receive assurance of salvation, reminders that we are forgiven, those things. The Spirit is bringing those things to our attention when we eat and drink. Let's jump to regeneration, uh, being born again. Regeneration is an act of God which unbelievers are given a new nature, uh, thus being born again or born from above. That's the language John will use. So regeneration, being born again, is not simply becoming a better you, It's not simply becoming a newer and improved version of yourself, your best self, uh, but it's about becoming an entirely different kind of person. And the Spirit is the one who affects the rebirth in us. So the classic passage many of us are familiar with is John 3, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear 
and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So being born again, born of the Spirit, born from above, signifies that the Spirit is the agent of our rebirth. Um, so if you remember our discussion about person, uh, persons act. They're, they're actors. They're not merely action. So the Spirit is the actor, the agent, uh, who accomplishes the rebirth. How does the Spirit accomplish the rebirth? What are the means? How does the Spirit work in us to accomplish it? Well, the means are the proclamation of the gospel through the word of God. So 1 Peter 1.23, Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, this is how it happened, through the living and abiding word of God. That's how the regeneration happened, was the Spirit's work through the proclamation of the gospel, through the proclamation of the word. So regeneration is an instantaneous event, but then there's this process of sanctification, glorification, and all the rest. You've been born again. Your old nature is dead. What was the old nature? Well, the old nature was spiritually dead. You were unable to respond to God or please him. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And now your new nature is enlivened by the Spirit, and you're able to live a life that honors and pleases God. You now have new desires new aspirations, new wants, things like that. And so I take the view that regeneration comes before conversion. And why? Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And it, and it goes on. And so apart from Christ, I was spiritually dead. And dead people are dead. They don't respond. Okay, unless you think of 1 Samuel 28 and the witch of Endor who awakens Samuel, and he's all upset about that. But that's, that's not usually the case. That's not normal. Dead people are dead. And so unless God awakens me and enables me to respond to him, I'm spiritually dead. I need him to awaken my heart before I'm, before I'm able to respond to him in repentance and faith. So God will always take the initiative. We love because he first loved us. Let's look at conversion Next, so where regeneration is a divine work, conversion is the human response to the gospel. So a simple, a simple definition of conversion. Conversion is the human response to the gospel consisting of repentance from sin and faith in, in Christ. So it's a human response that's prompted by God's action. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so there, there's genuine 
repentance, metanoia, turning away from sin, turning toward God. As we talked about in the past couple of weeks, there's genuine sorrow over sin, and there's there would be a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, but there's genuine sorrow, repentance over sin. That's required. What else is required? Faith. But here's the thing. What is faith in Christ? So saving faith is saving because of the object of our faith, the one in whom we place our faith, Jesus Christ. So faith is not saving if it's about how much faith I can muster up. But faith is saving because it's about the one in whom I place my faith. My faith is strong because the object of my faith, Jesus Christ, is strong. Now, I think many of us are confused about conversion. And uh, I think this is because partially we associate conversion with Paul's road to the Damascus experience. Uh, and we think that's what it means to be converted. And so even if we're genuinely converted at a young age, I think we tend, as we grow older, I think we tend to distrust our conversion and think that, well, when we grew older, we had some profound religious experience of the Spirit in our lives, and so that must be my true conversion. And I'm guilty of this in my own life, thinking about uh, what happened to me. Uh, I've since come around. I've, I've changed my mind on this. I don't think that's what happened. I, I believe I was genuinely converted at, at a young age. And my faith was at an appropriate maturity level for the age of a five-year-old. Uh, but it, it was not as if, um, you know, later in life, senior year of high school, I uh, suddenly had a conversion experience. No, I, I think, was the Spirit at work in that time of my life? Yes, in a profound way. But that doesn't mean I wasn't genuinely converted prior to that. Yeah. So here's C.S. Lewis on conversion in his book, Surprised by Joy. Um, he describes conversion this way. And I think it's helpful. He describes uh, on a trip to the zoo in 1931. Here's what he says. He says, When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when I reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. And I think this is really helpful. I, I think my point is that for many of us, conversion, I think, may be more like this. We may not be able exactly to pinpoint the exact moment it occurred, but we all that we know is that at some point we believed and responded to the gospel. So... Uh, I'm reminded of, what is that uh, episode in The Chosen? Some of you have seen it with Mary. I don't know exactly what she says, but basically she says, I was one way, then I was another way. That's all I know. <laughs> I don't know uh, when it happened. Well, for her, she knows when it happened. But for us, yeah, the point is, uh, I was one way, then I was another way. I don't know exactly the exact moment it occurred. 
I think that is a helpful way to think through conversion because we can spend, you know, we can wring our hands um, in, in turmoil trying to decipher when we were truly converted. And I like Lewis who says, well, it's kind of like for some uh, suddenly becoming aware that you're awake. I mentioned Bavink before. Here's what Bavink says. I think he's really helpful. Um, I love this quote. In pious circles, and so in religious circles, there's frequently much misunderstanding on this matter, and too much is made of the idea that one should precisely know the time of one's conversion. Spend a period of time in great dread and fear and be saved from it in a special or miraculous manner. But Scripture does not apply such a standard and only requires that there be uprightness and truth in the hearts of people. Grief over sin must be genuine. God knows the heart and tests the mind. And here's the part that I love. He says, one does not have to know precisely the time of one's conversion. What matters is not the time, but the fact of it. What matters is not the time, but the fact of it. And then he goes on, he says, in numerous cases, it's not even possible to determine that time because conversion arising as it does from the new life that has been implanted occurs gradually. It does not always have to be accompanied by perceptible shakings and violent pullings, but can occur slowly, little by little, smoothly. I just, I mean, that's, you know, Bavink was writing over a hundred years ago and, um, He's very readable, and uh, still, it, it just resonates. It's very applicable and encouraging. All right, uh, let's move to justification and cover this. Uh, here's Bavink. Um, he says another, uh, he's quoting Luther, justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Either we must do something to be saved, or our salvation is purely a gift of grace. Here's the definition of justification. Justification is a mighty act of God by which he declares sinful people not guilty, but righteous instead. He does so by imputing or crediting the perfect righteousness of Christ to them. Thus, while they are not actually righteous, God views them as being so because of Christ's righteousness. The first aspect is the forgiveness of sins resulting from Christ's substitutionary death. The second aspect is imputation resulting from Christ's obedience that makes people righteous. So Greg Allison, who was recently here a few weeks ago, told me a story about how the summer he was teaching systematic theology uh, at a maximum security prison in Texas. Um, and he was, you know, t teaching uh, these inmates who are lifers, no possibility of parole, all of whom um, have murdered someone. And all of them in this class have been born again um, and they then can go to other facilities, other uh, prisons, into areas where Greg couldn't go. Uh, they can go into 
areas where people are in solitary and things like that. And um, anyway, so it's just a very cool ministry uh, where these guys are learning theology. Um, and so he said he was teaching on justification. And he said an inmate stood up and, and, and Allison said, I'll never teach justification the same way <laughs> with, with this in mind. So this inmate stands up and he said, a human judge declared me guilty. But now in Christ, I am declared not guilty. That's the image of what's happening with justification. It's a powerful image. So Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So justification is a legal declarative act. And the technical term for this is forensic. And the, the major passage um, is Romans 3, 21 through 26, and others. But important in the concept of justification is God's nature, God's intrinsic justice. He is just. So God in Christ manifests the righteousness of God. So he can't just pass over sins because that would make him unjust. Sin has to be dealt with. So Christ bears the curse of the law for us through his substitutionary death. The penalty for sins is paid. And there God justly condemns sin in the flesh of the Son. So God is just and God is the justifier. We then, by faith in Christ, are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's work and his perfect obedience. He embodied fully the intrinsic righteousness of God. He was fully God, fully man. And so then as we are united to him, by grace through faith, he then imputes or credits, reckons, Christ's righteousness to our account. And earlier I spoke about Abraham, who was declared righteous on the basis of faith, which came before the law and, and circumcision, signs of the covenant. And that's what Romans 4, Galatians 3, discuss that. So faith, when we place our faith in Christ, faith is not properly considered a work uh, because we're not justified by our faith because our faith by itself merits anything. We're justified by faith because the object of our faith... <laughs> Jesus Christ, the faithful one. So we place, our, we place our faith in the faithful one, Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. Now let's briefly just look at uh, challenges to justification. Um, and we're going to look at Roman Catholicism and the new perspective. So first, Roman Catholicism. Uh, how do we differ on the issue of justification from Roman Catholicism. Uh, there's a lot we could say. Uh, broadly speaking, we're dealing here with very different conception of grace. Um, so this would be called a systems approach to comparing Protestantism and Catholicism. So there's a very different concept 
of grace. And important in understanding the difference would be the concept of imputation versus infusion. So we would hold to imputation, and Catholics hold to infusion. So with imputation, we are declared righteous. Righteousness is reckoned or credited to our account. <clears throat> it's Christ's righteousness imputed to us uh, fully, legally declarative act. Uh, with infusion, you're not declared righteous, but you become righteous through this process of infused grace. And what is that process of infused grace? Well, it, it's encompassed in participation in the sacraments, of which the Catholic Church teaches there are seven. Uh, it begins with baptism. Um, which for them is the removal of original sin, causes someone uh, to be regenerate. The, that marks the beginning of the infusion of grace. And then it continues through things like confirmation, the Eucharist, reconciliation, which is penitence, um, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and marriage. So it, it, it's a... It's a very different understanding of grace. Um, also, I'll, I'll go to this slide with this chart that compares the Protestant view of justification and the Catholic view of justification. But So you'll see there, Catholicism makes no distinction between justification and sanctification. Really, uh, for them, that's the same thing. Justification is sanctification, and justification comes at the end. So Protestants, we, we are objectively declared righteous, and we compartmentalize this. Um, so we would say we are declared righteous. That's justification. Then uh, we are sanctified for the duration of our life. That is a process, this cooperative process between God and the believer, through the Holy Spirit, uh, through which you um, grow more and more in greater Christ-likeness and holiness and godliness. So justification, you're declared righteous, then you grow in holiness through the duration of your life, and then glorification comes at the end, the return of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth. Roman Catholics, again, it's... Um, it's a process of infused grace that begins at baptism. Uh, and then as you cooperate with grace in the life of the sacraments, you are infused with grace and righteousness over time. And then at the end, you will be declared righteous. Um, so here's the, here's the rep. For Catholics, we are not declared righteous. We hope to be if we're good enough at the end. Well, this raises all kinds of problems. Goodbye, assurance of salvation. You, you just hope that you are justified. You, you don't know. 
And Catholics actually in the Reformation period reacted negatively to this idea of the assurance of salvation, thinking that it was a prideful doctrine, arrogant doctrine. And I would say, well, it would be prideful if it was based on human merit. But that's not what the doctrine is about. It's based on Christ's merit and then the testimony of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and assures us that we belong to him uh, forever. Now, Protestants are right to emphasize justification, but that in no way entails that we forget about this process of sanctification. So it's not as if works don't matter. So here's a quote from Bavinck. He'll, he'll say, Calvin makes a sharp distinction between justification and sanctification. The former is purely a forensic act, but he never separates the two and consistently keeps them very closely connected. And then he goes on and he says, we accordingly are not justified by works, but neither are we justified without works. So he makes a clear distinction, but if he's talking about justification, sanctification is going to be the natural outcome of that. Obedience, faith, growth and godliness is the natural fruit of someone who has been born again, justified, declared righteous. So uh, Paul is not in contradiction with James. Romans 3.28, Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James says in 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But James is emphasizing this point that faith without works is dead. So faith works. Uh, but the question there is the starting point. Um, new perspective, we don't have time to cover that, so um, look at that in your notes. And basically, it's a current contemporary debate, largely among Protestants, uh, New Testament scholarship, um, centering around Paul's understanding of Judaism and works of the law, and the concern is that the new perspective basically reinterprets the traditional understanding of what it means to be justified. Um, and so it's a redefinition of justification, which, of course, then has uh, implications for our understanding of the gospel. So uh, we'll stop there and take some time for questions.